Now, as we take this up, uh, you will remember last week we, we began to look at, at certain things that God had established in the foundation of the apostles. We had looked at last week the fact that the, the apostles were, they, they were uniquely fixed faithful and foundational. Now, uh, for those who weren't here and because of the failure of previous recording attempts, I just want to give us a, a reminder of how that unfolds in the scriptures. It told us in Acts 2 verse 1 uh, that uh, until the day Jesus was taken up, he gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He is the one who fixed who would be apostles and who would not be apostles. Christ himself is the one who chose them. Further, we saw that Christ himself is the one who established and indeed qualified them. Among those unique qualifications that an apostle had to have is that he had to be one who had received his teaching directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. So they wanted someone who had been with him the whole time. He had to be someone who had with his own eyes seen the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, he had to be appointed personally by Christ. Now, among those, Paul was seemingly an outsider, not having traveled with him in his earthly incarnation. But it was stated to him upon his conversion by that man, Ananias, that God sent to him. It has been granted to you to see the righteous one and to hear his voice. He would be uniquely added to that company. It was a fixed company of men who had seen the risen Lord. Indeed, it tells us in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, of all of those that Christ appeared to after his resurrection, those who would be on the list as potential apostles included 500 at one time, and included James, the brother of our Lord. But then it also tells us in chapter 15, verse 8 of 1 Corinthians, and last of all, he appeared to me as one untimely born. And so it was a fixed group of men. It had to be selected from among those who received their teaching from him, who had seen him and who were appointed by him. Further, not only is it fixed, these men were uniquely faithful. The scriptures tell us in uh, the Gospel of John, really chapter 14 through 16, of certain extraordinary, unique promises that God would give to those men, that the Holy Spirit who would come, he would remind them of all the things that Jesus had spoken to them while he was with them. That's not a promise to us because he wasn't, we weren't with him in his incarnation and he would teach them. Indeed, in John chapter 16, it goes so far as to say that the spirit will guide you into all truth so that we can have this confidence all that we have been given by the apostles which now is written down for us as our new testament all either authored or attested by the apostles comes with faithfulness it is true and to be believed further we saw that the apostles were foundational 
in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, anyone who thinks he's a prophet or thinks he's spiritual has to acknowledge that I, being an apostle, that I, what I write to you is a command of the Lord. Remember, through those 40 days, Jesus stayed and through the Holy Spirit gave commands to them. And it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the apostles and prophets. Now, there, the, the phrase apostles and prophets, the, the, the and in there can be seen like a hyphen. Grammatically, it's a hindiatus. The, the apostolic prophets are the foundation. With Christ as the chief cornerstone. Which is why Paul can go on to say. If anyone goes beyond what is written. Have nothing to do with them. Uh, John will even later say. Why, why he can say to them. Remember the traditions. And the, and the teachings and the writings. That have been given to you by us. That apostolic role was unique, it was initial, it was foundational, and it is gloriously complete. And we acknowledged also last week, sort of at the end of that, is some might say, oh no, so don't we have apostles today? Not in that sense, we don't have living apostles, but we have the same apostles the first century church had. And they still serve in the same way that they served in those days. Remember, most churches didn't have an apostle in their midst. They would receive letters and they would receive writings, maybe an occasional visit. So there's a real sense in which the fuller ministry of the apostles is more readily available to us. Than it was to any first century church. Because we have the whole of the New Testament. A firm and fixed foundation stated really in the terms of Jude. The faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. We have it. It is fixed. It is faithful. It is foundational. The word as well as those apostles. And though they are not still living with us. The word given to us through them is with us. And it is a living word. And so the ministry of the apostles still serves the church in the context of the word. But now we want to go on and begin to look at chapter 2 as Pentecost begins to take place. Now it's important to note this. Pentecost was, like the apostles being unique, Pentecost was a unique day in all of history. There was not a day exactly like it before. There has never been a day exactly like it since. There are certain what we, what we would call particulars or details of the day of Pentecost that are distinct, unique, and precious. And I want us to begin to unfold those today. And we got to understand that as it was happening on that day in Acts chapter 2 verse 12, the response of those who were present said this. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Okay. Now, we have the scriptures here given to us so that when we're done considering this, we may still be amazed, but we no longer need be perplexed. And the answer to that question, what do these things mean? We will get it. From the scriptures. So let's begin to unpack these things really in um, 
kind of um, the when, the where, the who, and the what. That's the way we're going to unfold this today. First of all, the when. When did this happen? Okay. Lots of speculation up in the air, but the most likely date of when this happened is the last week of May in the year 30 A.D. Most significantly from what we had seen before, it happens approximately seven days after Jesus ascended. We, re we noted that. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to ascend and not many days from now. I will send the Holy Spirit. And they're left with no detail. Well, does that mean three days? Does that mean four, five, seven, ten, a month, a year? What does it mean? He did not give them the answer to that. And there are a host of things we will face in our life where we do not have the answers to them. But even if we do not have the answers, God has a perfect plan. And we see unfolding on this day and on this occasion, a perfect precision to this plan. Because the, the when is it happened, you can say, 50 days after the death of Christ, seven days after the ascension of Christ. And, and where did it happen? The when and the where are so divinely designed because the timing is that it happens on the day of Pentecost. There were, as the scripture tells us, three times in a year. It tells you in Exodus 23, you, you can look this up for yourself, three times in a year that all of the males were to gather together to ultimately to Jerusalem. It was to the place that he would name in Exodus 23, because obviously Jerusalem was not yet established. It was the place where the tabernacle or the temple or the altars would be that ultimately ended up being Jerusalem, that God set his name in that place and it would represent him and they had to come three times in a year the first time they had to come was Passover the second time they had to come was this which is the feast of first fruits and the last one was the was the feast of ingathering which was at the end of the harvest now, confusingly to us, sometimes historians and theologians uh, refer to both the Feast of Ingathering at the beginning of the harvest as the Feast of Harvest. And sometimes the Feast of Ingathering at the end of harvest as the Feast of Harvest. But that, regardless of the confusion that takes place in man's languages, three times they had to come, Passover, the beginning of the harvest, Feast of Ingathering, the uh, Feast of first fruits, the end of the harvest. And what's interesting as we, we, those occasions would gather a multitude of people to Jerusalem. So that the day that God would be pleased to send out his spirit, to clothe them with power, and to make them mighty witnesses would be a day where he had assembled strategically and precisely 
from every single region to which the Jews had been spread through the years. And he will define later when we when we look at the the tongues that is expressed, basically every direction you go, north, south, east, west, and and every point of the compass in between people have assembled to Jerusalem at that time and so this the the uniqueness of well why why is he making them wait why is he giving them why 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 we will ask a lot of whys in our lives but here is another one of those occasions where we get to look back and say oh I can see exactly why, how perfect that plan was. Now, with a lot of our whys, you might not be able to look back a year later and see how perfect it was. You might not be able to look back at any point during this earthly life and say, ah, now I understand. It may be only when we no longer know in part, but when we know fully, even as we're fully known, when we say face to face, that suddenly it'll be, ah, now I understand. It seemed like a, an extremely protracted season where Job did not understand what was going on, why it was going on, what the purpose was in all of it. But we can know this, in all of the times our hearts might be tempted to scream out, why? The real answer to that why is because it is his good and perfect will. And it is good even if it doesn't seem good. And it is perfect even if we would do it differently. Because it is his will, not our own. Even as the cross was the perfect plan of God. Even when Jesus said in, the, in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. That is our, ought be our regular cry. What's also interesting to note about this is when you, when we begin, begin to unpack these things of this occasion and this feast, there were those three times they had to get, gather together. That first one being Pentecost, right? The, the where and the when. The first time that they would have to gather to Jerusalem was Pentecost. And what's interesting is Romans, um, or in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, God's word says this, cleanse out the old leaven as, as they came together on Passover for the feast of unleavened bread. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ is our Passover lamb. Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So that first point of gathering for all Jews, has now been sort of taken away from its historic purpose in, in the delivery from Egypt and the death of the firstborn that took place there. And now it is the death of the firstborn of heaven that has now taken up and, and replaced it. And so that significant thing, that almost most significant event in the history, in the minds of the children of Israel, that established them as a nation, that established them as a people, now what establishes us as a holy nation, what establishes us as the people of God, is our Passover, and that is Christ himself. Then they would gather together at the feast of 
ingathering or the feast of first fruits. And it says this in Romans chapter 8 of how creation is groaning, how, how everything that's going on, there is this sense that it's incomplete. It's not yet finished. It's not yet what it will be. So uh, creation, not only creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. That has the first fruits of the Spirit have been guaranteed to all who believe since the day of Pentecost. Remember, he's going to preach, and we will surely see it in the coming weeks. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. The first fruits here on the day of the feast of first fruits will be the initial sending of the first fruits of the Spirit poured out upon the apostles and then upon those who believe. Pretty remarkable. And then, of course, lastly was the, the feast of ingathering and the feast of harvest. And we're still waiting for that. So we've kind of got the Christ as that preeminent point that establishes his people. We've got Pentecost where we see the beginning of the last days and the first fruits of the spirit. And it carries on till the end of the age where God will send forth his angels and like a great harvest, and they will gather the elect from one end of the earth to the other. It's, it, so it's astounding when, you, when we look back and we see, wow, these primary feasts of the children of Israel, what they pointed to, all of their significance ends up being taken up in the person of Christ, in the plan and work of Christ, in the context of his church, and a bringing to an end the ages in himself for his glory. So it's, it's wow. So not only do we see uh, the when and the where, but now I want us to look at the who. Who did this happen to? Now, when we, uh, when we began to take this, uh, this chapter up last week. Now, there have been, uh, there's been a lot that's been taught through the years. And, and a lot that's taught can be done in terms of speculation. On the day of Pentecost, those who are gathered in one place, those who are in that one house, who hear the sound, see the fire, receive the spirit, and speak in tongues are the 12 apostles. And I want to demonstrate to you from the text here why that is there. Now, some say, no, it's the 120, and I'll show you why, why that doesn't quite fit the text. First, we did look last week at the strong overall emphasis on the apostles as we work our way from chapter one and following. Remember, the commands were given through the Holy Spirit to the apostles in verse two. Remember, it is the apostles themselves alone who are there at the ascension of Christ because they're again referred to in verse 11 as men of Galilee. They, how, how do we know that these men of Galilee and those who are there at the ascension are, are those who then journeyed to Jerusalem and were staying together as exclusively the, the 12, again at this point, early Acts, I could say the 11, though it will soon be 12 again. In verse uh, 13, they're listed for us. 
Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord. And remember, we continued to move through and we saw someone had to take the ministry of apostleship. That um, God was granting um, Peter st uh, stood and with the rest of the apostles in Acts uh, 2.37. Uh, God was granting many signs to be done, verse 43 of Acts 2, through the apostles. We see that strong apostolic emphasis immediately there. Then we also have the contextual clues most immediate. Not only do we have the strong emphasis on, uh, on the apostles, but the, the simple connection at the end of verse, uh, the last verse of chapter 1 says, and they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, in our ESV, it then says, when. All right, I'll say this. In our ESV, it says, when. In every other Bible, there is still like a chapter break and a verse break. But remember, the chapter breaks are not given by God. The verse breaks are not given by God. And some of the other translations have, and, and even a lot of the punctuation is not in the originals. But note this, the ESV here says when, should not say that. The word there is and, which you do see in most of the other translations. So if I was to read this without finding myself inhibited by the artifices of man, it would read like this. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles and the day of Pentecost arrived. They were all together in one place. So who contextually is they were all together in one place? The 11 and Matthias. More than that, in this context, in, in chapter 1 and 2, there's only two places where there is a reference to all all these were together. Now that word all is what has confused some to say it's 120. But the other place that the word all is used is in verse 14 of chapter 1. And it says this. All these with one accord. Who's the all these in verse 14? Well, you see it right there. He just listed the apostles. All these, if somebody other than the, them are gathered together, then that is especially mentioned, expressly mentioned. Because look what it says. All these with, together with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So the all these, even in the, this context, is a reference to the apostles. Further than that, when, this, uh, when the Spirit comes, it's important for us to um, maybe note this here. Um, it was men of Galilee was a reference to the apostles in chapter 1. When they begin speaking in tongues in that public scenario in chapter 2, look what it says in verse 7. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Again, the 120 are not going to be exclusively Galileans. But those who are speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost are Galileans because they are the apostles. Further, to see how this context flows, chapter 2 verse 14 says, Still there, as they've been speaking in tongues, the 
the apostles. It says in verse 14, but Peter standing with the 11. You know, it doesn't say he's standing with 120. Or it doesn't say he's standing with the brothers, which would have been brethren, which would have been an easier way to say that. And lastly, it also tells us this. Um, when they were all together in one place, in verse 2, it says this. When the sound came and it filled the, it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, so people have speculated, okay, maybe... Uh, Wow, to fit 120, they probably were in a special room in the temple court. Yeah, they would need a special room in the temple court to fill 120 people. But they're not in a special room in the temple court. They're in a house. And in a house, there's plenty of room for 12 fellas. I guess I could add another one interesting like that. This is on the day of Pentecost. This is not, this is not some of the, the common evening or afternoon meetings of the saints that might take place. Because Peter is going to soon say. Um, it's not yet the third hour. It's, it's not yet nine o'clock in the morning. You know if those 120 are anything like saints today. Getting them there before nine o'clock is tough. Right? No. It, it, it's... It, Again, it's likely you had these men who were staying together, who were sleeping together, who were eat, in, in the same vicinity, who were eating together, who the Lord continued to meet with. And here they were told to go back. They were told to wait. They were told that they would be clothed with power. They were told that the promised baptism would be received by them and they would be witnesses. Again, that, that receiving and being clothed with power to be witnesses that was declared to them. We also noted this. They would be witnesses the terminology given to those 12 was eyewitnesses, first-hand witnesses. We're witnesses in a secondary sense. They were witnesses of what they had seen and heard. We are, by grace, witnesses of what we have heard and believed. Right? Blessed are those, Jesus said, blessed rather... He says to when Thomas is so amazed at seeing, blessed rather are those who believe without seeing me. And so we, we see that the, the who that's being re referred to here is the 12 apostles. So they are the ones who first receive this baptism of the Spirit. Now listen to me. I'm not saying that they're the only ones who received the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. I think it's very likely, though we don't have many details of it, very likely that 3,000 more received that very day. Because that day, God brings 3,000 to faith and they are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and they were added to the church. And what is it that was stated to them in that gospel promise and proclamation? Repent and be baptized and you will receive the Spirit. So yes, before 9 a.m., 12 received the Holy Spirit. But before that day is done, the Spirit of God had been poured out upon more than 3,000 souls.
This was a powerful day, this day of Pentecost. Now the what. What has happened here? Now, some get confused because what, this is not where the Holy Spirit began. It's not as if the Holy Spirit did not exist before this. All who have ever believed had only believed because of the gracious work of God through the work of the Spirit imparting faith. Further, we do know also many times the scripture in the Old Testament speaks about the Spirit rushing upon someone. And it says that repeatedly, for example, as we're getting going through the book of Judges in the morning hour, you're going to see the Spirit rushed upon Samson. You know, and he, and he did some fancy things, ties foxtails together at times, other times picks up the gates of the city and carries them up a hill. But the Spirit would rush upon him empowering him and enabling him for a specific task. And then the spirit would rush upon him again. So there was comings and goings. David would cry out to God, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because he, he wanted to continue to have those glorious influences of the spirit that would enable him to write the Psalms and be used of God. The scripture reminds us, though there was a time that Saul himself had experienced the presence and spirit of the Lord and even prophesied with the prophets. It was spoken of Saul. Saul is among the prophets. But then it says, the spirit of the Lord departed from him. Regarding Samson, he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. But as we come to the new covenant era, the new covenant in his blood, because of our Passover lamb, the baptism of the spirit that would be poured out on believers, they will be sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. He does not depart. Jesus says it this way in preparing them to understand this in John 7, 38 and 39. He says this, whoever believes in me, the scripture as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So now it's a strange sentence, but where's this water coming from in Jesus's description? From outside or from inside? From inside. Thank you. Now this verse 39 tells us, and, and I'm so thankful for verse 39 because otherwise out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Would you have understood what that is? And I fear what men would have done with that left to themselves. But God stopped it, explained it. Now this he said about the Spirit. Out of their hearts will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit. Whom those who believe in him were to receive. There is a kind of receiving the Spirit. That believers before did not have. That is going to reach a, a newer level. Were to receive. What? For as yet the spirit had not been given. Now the spirit was at work. But the spirit in this fuller sense had not been given till the day of Pentecost. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. But Jesus ascended 
to the right hand of the Father, taking upon himself once again that glory that he longed for in John 17, that he had before the foundation of the earth, receiving that glory, even receiving that glory from the Father on the perfect completion of his incarnate mission. And he says, I will ask the Father and he will send the Spirit. I will send the Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, he does that. In John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, it says this. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Oh, isn't that glorious? So different. Uh, you, you, when we look at, at poor Saul... And we just see him going down and we see him go astray. And then we and it just goes from sin to sin to sin to death. And it's just like, oh, no. But the spirit had been taken from him. But with us, the spirit is given forever. And so though we might stumble, he will yet pick us up. Though we might sin he who dwells within us will yet convict. Though we might, in a, for, for a brief season, respond in disobedience and with a hardness of heart, the Spirit will break up that hard ground and He will yield forth His fruit. Where the Spirit is planted, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of grace will come forth. Oh, further, uh, um, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him. It says in John 14, 17, you know him for he dwells with you. There is a present influence of the spirit, but he will be and he will be in you. So there was some degree of a present influence and work of the spirit that benefited them. But there was going to now become an extraordinary internal impact and empowerment by the Spirit, which is far greater than the external influences. I'll go so far as to say the present possession and powerful production of what the Spirit does within us is greater, more profound, more powerful, and more glorious than what Samson did. Now, I know what Samson did sounds pretty impressive. And a few of you think, I'd like to give that a shot. What God does in us by the Spirit, Samson would look on with utter jealousy. Because without the, the Spirit in the same way that we have, what did he do? Delilah. Deception. Compromise, compromise, compromise that led to captivity and ended in his death. We, brothers and sisters, have been set free by the Son who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. And we will not ever more be captive. Sin will not have dominion over us. Death the grave has no power, has no sting, because the life of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, is alive in us. Amen? Oh, I just think uh, 
when we, when we hear those stories and think, I want to be like Samson. No, Samson wants to be like us. We look back on all those things and, and, and we think, oh, look at all those great events, those powerful displays and miracles of God as he brings them out of Egypt and all of those things. What God is doing now in us is the things that even angels long to look at. Do we get that? They longed for these days. Abraham and the prophets longed for these days. We even tend to think, oh, to have been there and to walk what we call the Holy Land and with Jesus and to hear his voice. What we have is not lacking in any way. There is a spiritual sense through the word of God, by the power of the spirit that Hebrews can say today, if you hear his voice, Christ still vitally speaks through his word to his people in fullness. None had it better than we have. The end of the age as the spirit has been given even without measure. So we, we can see that there is a transition. But I want us to note this. On this day of Pentecost was the day of and this, this is a debate that takes place within Christian theology. And I don't want to get too much into the debate, but it's useful to understand it. The, there's two terms the scriptures lay out here. And, and that is the idea of baptism in the spirit and filling of the spirit. Okay, those two ideas, baptism and filling. And what I want us to understand is this. And this is, the re, this is also the reason why it does get confusing to some. On the day of Pentecost, both happened. There was baptism of the Spirit and filling of the Spirit. And since both happened, sometimes later Christianity looks back and sees that baptism took place and they get confused. Here's the simplest understanding that I can convey to you and then we'll look at a few texts. Baptism of the Spirit, like our baptism... Into the church in water. It takes place once. In the first baptism. In the, in the baptism of the spirit. It is accompanied by our first filling of the spirit. We will subsequently have many fillings of the spirit. We don't need many baptisms. Because in that baptism. We are added to understand the baptism of the spirit and, and to see how this plays out. First of all, note this chapter one of Acts verse five. Speaking of what's going to happen on the coming day of Pentecost, it says Jesus says to the disciples, to the apostles for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So that's what they were Waiting for that's what they were expecting. They were waiting for the baptism of the spirit. Now when you come to chapter 2. When they receive the baptism of the spirit. Chapter 2 verse 4 says this. And they were all. Filled with the spirit. So on the day of Pentecost. Were they baptized in the spirit. Or were they filled with the spirit. Uh huh. They were baptized. And in their baptism, they were filled. 
you know. I mean, you can picture it in a horrific way if you want to, baptized into the water with your mouth open and then filled up. You don't want to do that in the water, but with regard to the Spirit, it's extraordinary, which why it is the most profound baptism that takes place. So let's not confuse that. The baptism is, and the reason why I say baptism takes place once and only once for the believer, it is when they receive the Spirit. We, we see that explanation, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says this, for in one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. And we're all made to drink of one spirit. So when does somebody receive the baptism of the spirit? When they are added to the body of Christ. When the spirit comes regenerating. Causing us to be born again. Making us new. We are baptized and then it also interestingly says and making us to drink because in that baptism comes our first filling of the spirit again to, to emphasize the idea of the baptism of the spirit as an initial work in the conversion grace that God pours out Acts 19 as Paul comes to a group of uh, disciples of a sort he says this to them with confident expectation. Acts 19.2. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What's Paul's absolute confidence that's going to be the pattern in the New Testament age? You're going to what? Receive the Spirit when you believe. And that's the way it's going to work. Now, the problem that took place on this day is they said, no, uh, we've not even heard about the Holy Spirit. Which means if they've not even heard about the Holy Spirit, they've not even yet heard the gospel. <laughs> because the gospel declares God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The gospel is attended to the gospel as we see on the day of Acts is the promise of receiving the Holy Spirit. So what they had was not yet right. The, the spirit baptism takes place in the day of our salvation when we are added to the body of Christ. When we believe by the grace wrought by the spirit in our heart as he baptized. As, we, as Christ baptizes us in the spirit. Now filling. Fillings will be repeated. Not a single filling. They are filled on this day. I've already read it to you. Acts chapter 2 verse 4. These apostles here in Acts 2 4 are filled with the spirit. But then in chapter uh, 4 verse 8. It's going to say then Peter filled with the spirit said to them. Wait. Why did Peter need to be filled again? Wasn't he already filled? Yeah. The fillings are to be repeated. It's also interesting to note if you're, if you're working your way through the scriptures, there are no commands in the scripture to be baptized in the spirit. But there is command to be filled with the spirit. 
That's in Ephesians chapter 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And we do that as we drink in the words of Christ. We meditate upon it, let it dwell within our heart. As we contemplate the promises, the work, the power, and the glory of God, He fills us and emboldens us and empowers us to speak and to do the work that He's called us to do. So, again... What uh, that's that's the basic beginning of the idea of what uh, baptism is once for all time at faith fillings take place repeatedly. Actually, the idea of fillings, it's not something that that again, where we we randomly think um, like like some of the Old Testaments that oh, I hope he fills me today. We're commanded to be filled. We're instructed on how to be filled a life of regular Fillings is what's to be expected. Though it is extraordinary, it is actually the ordinary expectation of believers to be regularly and repeatedly filled with the Spirit as they take in, meditate upon, and the Spirit produces powerfully work within them. Now, what happened uniquely on the day of Pentecost? So some of those things, a baptism and filling, to some degree will happen to all of us. But there are certain things that happen on the day of Pentecost that were unique to them. And I'm not stating this uniquely from a theological point of view. I'm stating this uniquely from a biblical revelation point of view where it's never mentioned again. Never happens on any other occasion. The first of those, you can see with me, uh, as they're gathered together in the little room, uh, the, in the little house, chapter 2, verse 2, they heard... Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. All right. I want us to note this. It does not say a wind came. It says the sound like a wind came. Okay. So let us not be confused. People say, well, the spirit, the word spirit, pneuma, is also the word for wind. And so here they were, hair was flowing. There's no indication of anything of that. But what I want you to get is this picture. The, the sound of wind came from heaven. So you get this. They're in the house. And, and what do they begin to hear? It, the sound doesn't begin in the house. The sound begins on high. And, and we've heard that at times. And you, you hear the sound of a storm. And sometimes the sound of the wind swirling in the sky. And you're thinking, I hope that doesn't touch down anywhere. If that touches down somewhere, it's going to have some effect. Is that not right? Well, this sound was taking place. And then this sound descended and then this sound entered, and the sound was entirely localized and filled the house. Okay, that doesn't ever happen again. Uh, Acts chapter 10, when the Spirit falls on them with Cornelius, there's no sound from heaven. The, uh, that does not take place. That is uniquely here because this is where the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. And He is poured out on the apostles and then upon the first fruits. And this begins 
the new covenant era. A lot of people like to say this is when the church began. But that's a, that's a little more complex because the scripture does say, you know, that the church is established in his blood. So could we tie it to the cross? And why are we fighting over that? The church is established in Christ by his purposes, fulfilling God's will by the working and power of the spirit. Here, the new covenant era begins. They begin to be witnesses. Here at least is the, is the beginnings of what we, we might tend to call the visible church. But even then, were there not 120 at least at one time they gathered? What were they? My answer is, I don't know. But I know this. Whether from Adam and Abel to the end of the age, all that are ever brought to faith are added to the church. The only hope of salvation and the only forgiveness is in Christ and his shed blood. He laid his life down for the church. That includes the church of all ages, eras, and times. And so uniquely what they heard, an audible sign, like mighty rushing wind, that's the closest approximation that they can give secondly what was seen what's the visible sign a sign it's like as of fire it's important for us to understand this both of these are stated with with those simple words that we might say uh, like like similes like or as so it wasn't necessarily wind it was a sound that most closely could be described as wind-like. The visible appearance wasn't fire, but it can most closely be described as fire-like. You know how fire, as, as it's there, you have the, the lapping of, of, of the tongues of fire as it rises? That's the general description that he gives. And he speaks of, of this fire coming, uh, fire-like appearance coming. And it doesn't simply manifest in the room. But then it divides and it rests above each one who is in the room. Now, the, the, there is some significance to this because really what we're having is not only are we coming into a new age and a new covenant, but we're, we're looking at a new temple, a new tabernacle. Everything is advancing. Remember, in Exodus chapter, and I'm going to have to go a little quicker now. In Exodus chapter 40, um, when they built the tabernacle in the wilderness, the cloud and the fire, pillar of fire would descend upon the tabernacle. And the scripture actually will say that it would fill the tabernacle. Verse, chapter 40 verse 30 it says. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. And fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So this visible fire like manifestation represented the, the personal presence of God in the tabernacle. In the, again, at the, in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 and 2, Solomon at the dedication of the temple, the same thing happens. He finished 
his prayer. Fire came down out of heaven and consumed the burnt offerings. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord's house. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple? The temple is no longer a building in the place of Jerusalem. But the temple of God is God's own people. Not only corporately, but also individually. As down in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he's been warning them about uh, uh, sinful behavior and, and joining immorally with prostitutes. Cannot, ought not, must not be done. It says in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Something has tremendously happened on this day. Now the temple. Each one of us is a temple. And the spirit of God indeed in some sense the glory of God dwells within us individually. You are added to that. We, we are added to that body individually. It no longer goes to any connection to your ancestors. And again, it's interesting. These men did nothing to elicit, nothing to draw this particular manifestation to themselves. It was sent, it was bestowed, it was distributed, it was given, and it was internalized. And it brought about a tremendous change um, and it's interesting I, when I think of this he, remember Jesus in Matthew 13 31 and following he put the parable to them and he said you know the mustard seed the kingdom can be compared to a mustard seed you know it starts out really small here maybe you could say the kingdom can be like a mustard seed it starts out really small this spirit is poured out on what appears to be 12 men but very soon, what does it do? It will become the biggest of the plants in the garden. And it would soon, in that very day, go from 12 to 3,000. No, I'm not going to say 3,012 because it's a rounded off number. Um, but a, a, a powerful book. Those are things that would, would not be repeated anywhere Throughout the rest of the New Testament, you don't have that sound again being manifest in anyone's day of salvation and conversion. You don't have that visible appearance of the fire manifest anywhere else again throughout the New Testament. Those demonstrative, definitive, this is the day, this is the promise events took place there. So that no one, not a one of them is going to be left scratching their head and saying, do you think this might have been what he was talking about? You know? No, no, no. It, this is something where they, all questions are dissolved with certainty. Now, further than that, there are things that would be repeated. And I'll just state these by way of introduction because we'll end up coming to these things in, in, in the future as we move through there. There are other things that would be repeated with the filling of the Spirit what, that would be repeated throughout the book of Acts. First of all is verbal boldness. These men who until this point were rather fearful, hiding, 
gathering in small groups and secret prayers and locked rooms. Now what do they do? Publicly, boldly, loudly, they raise their voice and declare the wondrous works of God. So there is a verbal boldness, and, and we'll see this verbal boldness uh, unfold further in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, where these, these same men who crucified Christ are now challenging uh, Peter. And it says, then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, he was bold enough. The same man who, when confronted by a little maidservant, was he bold? No, he denied in triplicate. But now... When confronted by men who had the power to again pronounce judgment upon him and punishment, even death, with boldness. He would, again, they would pray that they, for boldness. And then at the end of Acts chapter 4, they would be filled with the Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Secondly, not only were, were, did they receive verbal boldness, but they also were received spirit giftedness. Spirit giftedness would be repeated. Now, two, two gifts are manifest today on that day of Pentecost. One is the gift of tongues. The other might, well, I, I guess multiple, maybe the gift of teaching, the gift of preaching, and the gift of evangelism. Because Peter lays all those things out, doesn't he? So we see spirit giftedness manifest on that day. Now the giftedness of tongues here. And, and just by way of introduction, I want us to understand this. The tongues on the day of Pentecost was meaningful, methodical, and magnifying. What do I mean by that? It was meaningful. They were speaking real languages that r people really spoke and people really knew and people understood what was being said. It, it, it wasn't just a bunch of confusing uh, uh, gibberishy sounds. Now, part of the challenge is this. If you go back even to 1100 years B.C., Within the Greek and Roman religions, you had all kinds of pagan mysticism that would take place. Uh, uh, through the temples of Apollo, through worship of Dionysius, there were all kinds. People would go even, for example, to the, uh, to the Oracle of Delphi or Delphi. And supposedly there would be from time to time select virgins who would be put in this room who would come under an influence of state into a trance-like state. And then when people would come to ask questions, this girl would go into a trance-like state and, and say all kinds of gibberish of which amazingly the priests who were there for a sum could tell you what she had instructed you. So you could get that interpretation. And, and there were all kinds of, of, of practices of, of, of um, ecstatic utterances. Uh, people being brought to a state of emotional ecstasy that would overflow in an abundance of sounds and syllables that was common among paganism. But nobody could understand what was going on. Here on the day of Pentecost, nobody would have been confused and thought, well, this is the same thing that goes on in the pagan temples. This is the same thing that goes on in the pagan festivals. Nobody's confused because they're all sitting there and saying, wait a second. 
These men are Galilean, but they're speaking Parthenian. These men are Galilean, but they're speaking in the language of the Medes. They're Galilean, but they're speaking in the language of Egypt. Wait a second, how is this? And it's even more astounding because God had so marked out that it would be Galileans. For the Jews, Galileans couldn't even speak Aramaic properly. In their mind, uh, generally, and and, and I guess somewhat factually, the, the Aramaic of the Galileans was considered a rude Aramaic. And the Greek that they would attempt was considered a crude Greek. Because it was not an educated group of people. And now you have them speaking in distinctive languages. A multitude of languages with clear articulation. And they can see the the style of dress. These These are Galileans. How is this even possible? Because... God is granting such a meaningful language that they would hear. Even indeed, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, There are doubtless, verse 10, there are doubtless many languages in the world, but none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. You know, that's the confusing practice. But in the, in the gift of tongues, as it was given by the Spirit to be exercised, it would be meaningful. Further, it would be methodical. It, we're told in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 14, 23, um, if there the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, an outsider and unbeliever will come and enter and say, have they not lost, are they not out of their minds? That's why verse 27 says this, each in turn, or other translations, NIV, one at a time. King James, and that by course. Not as clear. New American Standard, each in turn. The New English translation, also very helpful, one after another. And with translation. If there's no translator, be silent. Now here, there were translators on the day of Pentecost, but most likely the reason why you don't need a multitude of translators is because this fella is proclaiming the wonder of God in the language of the Parthenians. The next guy is proclaiming the same wonders of God in the language of the Cretans. The next guy is proclaiming the same wonders of God in the language of Bithynia. And so you've got, you've got this communication it's meaningful it's methodical how do i know because they understood you get 12 people all shouting together at the same time in the same language you're going to make out what they're saying yikes get 12 people now shouting 12 different languages at the same time it'll be madness but that's not the way each it it actually says in there each of them spoke into verse 4 As the Spirit gave them utterance, there is a methodical. As he he would fill and enable one and he would proclaim. And then the next and he would proclaim. And the next and he would proclaim. And all until it seems like ultimately all the languages of the people assembled were accounted for. None had not heard of the glories of God. What a remarkable event. And then Peter would preach to them in the shared language. And lastly, I want us to understand this. It was magnifying. They weren't just talking a bunch of gibberish. They weren't just making themselves 
feel good. What were they doing? Acts 2.11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. It's God-centered. Real tongues was God-centered. In Acts chapter 10, when it fell on the people in Cornelius' house, again, what does it say? For we hear them, 1046, we are hearing them speaking in tongues, extolling God. The gift given on that day, we saw verbal boldness and we saw spirit giftedness. And then I guess lastly, we could say we see God-centeredness. You know, that gift is meaningful it's methodical, it's magnifying. Those are the particulars. The when, 30 AD, last week of May, on the day of Pentecost, as all were gathered there. The who, the 12 apostles themselves. The what, the, vi the audible sound, the visible sound. Like wind, like fire. And then the repeatable ones, verbal boldness, spirit giftedness, God-centeredness. Let's pray.